Father, we come this morning on the heels of, of everything that You have done for us. We ask now that you would, you would allow me to speak as one speaking the very words of God. And You would allow us to listen as those listening to the very words of God. And I, I just pray that, that I would be faithful to You and to the text and also helpful to those who are listening either in this room or over their computers. We ask all these things of You, Lord, through the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, this, this is the fifth and final week of a series that we have been doing here at Redemption Hill called Context Versus Conjecture. And if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open those up with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And Romans is the sixth book of the New Testament. And while you're turning there, I'll just say a few things as you find that that scripture. We've been going through this series called Context versus Conjecture, where as a church we have been learning how to keep passages of the Bible in their proper context so that we can avoid the very dangerous error of basing our lives on what we have termed conjecture. That is, you can think of that as half truths that use the Bible's words but take those words out of context and then end up causing us to believe very unbiblical ideas. That's what we mean when we use that term conjecture. And so, I have actually titled today's message, Christ-Centered Realism versus Self-Centered Optimism. Because as we read not only Romans chapter 8, verse 28 itself, but the surrounding context, we're going to see that there is one way to read and understand that verse, which amounts to little more than self-centered optimism, but there's another way to read it which amounts to a very Christ-centered realism. And that is what we are aiming for as people. So over the past few weeks, if you've been with us, you've noticed that we've taken some time to look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And we talked about what that actually meant. And then two weeks ago, Chris DeRocco took us through Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, which says, judge not, lest you also be judged. Another very famous verse of Scripture, and we talked about what that meant. And last week, Chris took us again through Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. By his wounds, or by his stripes, we are healed. And we talked about whether or not that was an assurance of physical or spiritual healing. And I think Chris did a phenomenal job. In fact, if you, if you go onto our website at redemptionhill.com, on our homepage, to the bottom right-hand corner, there's a section entitled Recent Sermons. All of those messages are available for you if you've missed any of them. Today we're going to do the same thing with Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And so what I want to do is just begin by reading it together. And after that, I'll tell you the rest of what we're going to do. So if we have that one, there it is, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. One more time. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. If Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is true, and it is, I'll just come right out and say that. Just like everything else in the Bible, it's true. If Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is true, that means that this is one of the most 
precious and wonderful promises the, the Lord has ever given to human beings. Namely, the promise that all things work together for good for a very specific set of people. Those who love God and are called according to His purpose. If this is true, there are few promises more precious than this. And my sincere hope and our sincere hope as pastors here is that everyone sitting in this room and everyone listening over the computer would be able to leave at the end of this message saying, the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is for me. Not just other people, but also for me. However, when you leave saying that, I do not want you to leave saying this. I don't want you to think Romans chapter 8, verse 28 means the following. Because we love God and are called according to His purpose, the really bad things that happen to some people won't ever happen to us. God will always protect us from those things and cause all things to work out for our good. As we define that term. That is not what this great verse means. That is the self-centered optimism I'm talking about. There is a Christ-centered realism which surrounds and saturates that verse and we're going to take a look at it this morning. With the rest of our time, then what I want to do is answer two questions. Number one, what does this verse actually mean when we keep it in context? Romans 8.28 And how should a correct understanding of this verse change our lives? And I'm going to pray one more time and ask the Lord to help me. Lord, please help me. Amen. All right. Before I leave, before I leave, it doesn't take long. Sometimes prayers just, God knows what you need. Before we leave Romans chapter 8, verse 28, let's look at something that I want to pull out of this one verse before we look at the rest of the context. Let's look at it one more time. I'll read it for us and then we'll, we'll pull out a few things. Paul says here, the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter says, and we know that all things work together for good. For those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, the first thing I want us to realize is that the Apostle Paul does not simply say here that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You might say, well, yes, he does. We've read it about four times already. Yes, but, but he doesn't say just that. He says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And that is very important because the Apostle Paul is not simply saying, hey, there's this truth out there. Whether you know it or not, all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. No, the Apostle Paul's intent here is not to simply point us to some future or ultimate reality from which we will benefit at a later date. He is, he is trying to bring the reality that is future into the present time through our knowledge of it so that we might benefit today. He says, and we know that all things work together for good. And as a result, it helps us now. Are you all with me? You see, it's one thing for this to be true, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It's another thing for us to know it right now. And only those who know this right now benefit from it right now. Everyone who loves God and is called according to His purpose will ultimately benefit from this in the fullest sense 
whether you know it right now or not. But those who know this right now have a benefit from this promise that far surpasses anything else. It's, the benefit is amazing. We need to know this today. Today. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to really focus on those and we know. And I'll say more about that before we're finished with this message. The second thing that I want to focus on in this verse is something that the Apostle Paul means when he says that all things work together. When he says work together here, he uses a very interesting word in the Greek as he's writing this. The word that he uses is the word soon ergo. Ergo is to work. Soon ergo to work together. In a sense, this is the same word that Paul uses about himself and Apollos. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says that we are God's sunergos. God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. He's speaking to the church and says we are God's fellow workers. And so in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, what the Apostle Paul is saying is all things are God's sunergos. They are God's fellow workers. These things are fellow workers together for our good. So now we want to read the surrounding context to figure out what things is Paul talking about. I mean, what are these things that are fellow workers in the hands of God for our good? Does this include bad things and difficult things? Or is it just limited to what we call good things? There are some fellow workers for our good that we're going to read about today as we go back and read the whole context of Romans 8.28. I'm just going to take us, <clears throat> take us back to verse 16. So join me in your Bibles or on the screen, and we're just going to read at least to verse 30 to begin with. You're going to hear a lot of Bible right now. Let's just really pay attention to it, because the promise in this verse, if we get it, is absolutely life-changing. And, and I, trust me on this one, you and I need to be changed in the way that this verse means to change us. This whole passage means to change us. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation... But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, and I think this likewise, I'll pause with the reading for a second, I think this likewise goes back to verse 16 where Paul tells us something that the Spirit does for us. He bears witness 
with our spirit that we are the children of God. And now in context, bless you, I think he says, likewise, verse 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So that, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. If I were to stop there, I would be guaranteed that I have spoken as one who speaks the very words of God. It can only go downhill from here. Lord, help us. It's good to read a lot of the Bible and to read through some of these very famous verses Let's go and, and walk through what we read verse by verse. We'll go quickly through some places, but, but pretty, pretty slowly through others. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit in verse 16. And Paul very quickly moves down through this passage and he says that we have an inheritance. If the Spirit in verse 16 is bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, then we are not only God's children, but as His children, we have an inheritance. We are heirs of God, joint heirs or co-heirs with Jesus Christ, but there's a suffering clause in the will. You all with me? There's a suffering clause. Sometimes with a will, the way these are drawn up, lawyers will tell you, there are clauses in there and there are conditions. This says that we are heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And then Paul begins to say, now I know you think that that's really bad news, but it's probably not as bad as you think. For I consider, verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is going to speak to us now throughout this context about something that he, he generalizes as the sufferings of this present time. Sufferings which we as children of God must go through in order to receive the inheritance which belongs to the children of God. Are you with me so far? Alright, we're very much just walking through the text. So there are some sufferings it's not all just fun and games for God's children. There are sufferings of this present time that we have to endure and go through and embrace with Christ if we are to inherit the inheritance given to the children of God. And Paul continues through verse 18 into verse 19. He says, For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole created order is waiting for something. And Paul continues in verse 20 and says, For the creation was subjected to futility. Now someone subjected the created order to futility. Weeds spontaneously grow up out of the ground. 
Ground that was once fertile, if, you, if it's left alone, can become infertile. Thorns grow up. It's hard to grow crops in certain areas. The ground itself, creation, was subjected to a certain kind of futility. Trees die. All kinds of things die. And this was not, the creation did not come to God and say, please do this to us. Watch. Verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It did not say, well, Adam and Eve sinned. The ground did not say, God, curse, curse me. So that it's hard for me to bring forth fruit and the things that mankind wants and needs. Creation was subjected to futility. And here's where most people would say, this was the work of Satan. Satan subjected creation to futility. We can't read that into the text, and I'll show you why. Let's keep reading. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Now, who's that Him? Has to be God. And we know that because of this. Whoever subjected creation to futility, whoever this Him is, subjected creation to futility in hope. That can't be Satan. And that can't be Adam and Eve because they had no future plan for what they were doing. They didn't subject creation to futility with the hope that it would be liberated from its bondage eventually. God did that. So we're getting to look at a piece of God's plan here, the wisdom of God, which says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to subject the world that I made to futility as a result of the sin of, of in response to the sin, although I planned it before, in response to the sin of man and woman, I'm going to subject creation to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, which I just, I just subjected it to, and then obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You might say, well, that's a strange plan. You know what, though? That's God's plan. That's what He's doing. That's what the Bible teaches us. And He keeps going. It gets better. Watch this. Now, God did all of this, again, so that the creation itself in verse 21 would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this... Pay very close attention to verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves. Creation is groaning, and now we ourselves, and in case we were still confused as to who this we is, Paul removes all doubt. And we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He is referring to the same group of people that we read about in verse 28 who love God and are called according to His purpose. In verse 16, who are called the children of God. In verse 18, called to endure the sufferings of this present time. These people, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. He says, even we, verse 23, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for something. Creation is waiting eagerly for the sons or the children of God to be revealed. But even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit are waiting eagerly and groaning as we wait for something. Now what is it that we're waiting for? Creation is waiting for us to be fully revealed. What are we waiting for? If we keep reading, we get the answer. Which is, this is usually how it works. If we, if we read the Bible enough, we begin to ask the right questions. And when we ask those right questions, what we find is that the Holy Spirit actually answers them very soon in the rest of the passage that we have not yet read. 
And so let's get the answer to that. What are we waiting for? Well, the Apostle Paul says here in verse 23 that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Not only was the rest of the created order subjected to a kind of futility and frustration, but we ourselves have been subjected to something here. And we are waiting for something better. Our full adoption as sons, and Paul qualifies that by saying, the redemption of our bodies. We are waiting for something we don't have yet. There is something about our present bodies that we long to be set free from. We are waiting for the redemption of our bodies, something which we do not have yet and will not have as long as we are called by God to do verse 18 and endure the sufferings of this present time. We are waiting for this and God allows us to continue to not have this yet and to wait for it because it is the occasion for hope. God is determined to have His people live with hope. He does not want us to go through life without hope. He would rather us suffer with hope than live according to what we think is not suffering without hope. You, you'll die without hope. God knows this, even though we don't. And so He has worked everything out to make sure that there are some things that we want that we don't have so that we might hope for them. Are you with me? One of those things is the redemption of our bodies, the perfecting of this tent which now houses us. And as long as God sticks to the plan that He put in motion in the beginning, no set of modern beliefs will change the fact that there are things that are going to go wrong with our bodies. Christian or not. Are you all with me? This is the plain teaching of the Bible. And I'm, I'm taking time to go through this line upon line, precept upon precept, not to establish a doctrine per se. We were just talking to a good friend, and I won't name names, but there's a, a friend of a friend, the friend of the friend that we were talking to, just died two days ago of cancer. This woman is a believer. She left four children behind. And I, I assume a husband. She's a believer. They prayed for her to be healed. Many of the people in her circle are, are without the understanding that I've been conveying to you recently. And so now there are dozens of people trying to figure out why God has let them down and didn't answer their prayers. Why he did not make good on his promise to heal this child of God. What will happen to her four kids? Are they now going to be made to feel that God has let their mother down and let them down? And are they going to foolishly now run away from God because God doesn't work? Do you see what's at stake here? Our kids' souls are at stake. Our souls are at stake. What we believe matters. This is why we're going through this. This, this stuff does hurt us. Now that, that woman is in heaven. She's with Jesus now. She's never been better. I promise you. I'm more concerned about us. She's never been better. Battling with cancer for over a year, I believe, she's never been better. 
I, I guarantee you now, if, if there's anything she could do to help her kids from where she is, she would say, ah, oh, God didn't let me down. Kids, don't go anywhere. God did not let me down. He won't let you down either. But we need to get a right understanding of what God said. Let's continue. Let's go through this, this passage. We're waiting for something, verse 25. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And that is the will of God for us, that there are some things that we would wait for with patience. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So creation is groaning. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit are groaning. And now the Spirit is groaning. The Spirit Himself is groaning to intercede for us. When we lack the words to pray as we ought, He steps in and prays through us. Watch this. The Spirit groans with groanings too deep for words. Verse 27, And He who searches hearts knows the mind of the Spirit. That's how I know that the Spirit is not just groaning around us, but through us. Because the Bible says that He, meaning God, who searches hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit. So God is going inside human hearts to discern the mind of the Spirit that is coming to Him. Are you with me? So the Spirit is groaning, not just around us, but through us, as we pray without knowing what to pray. Did you know that you could pray even when you don't know what to say to God? I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to that in a minute when I talk about how this should change our lives. But the Spirit in verse 27, God who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now God knows the mind of the Spirit even when we don't. But we do know something. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, God works for the good of those who love Him. He works all things together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. We know that. So even when we sit there and we don't know how to pray, we can trust that the Holy Spirit is praying through us with groanings too deep for our words, and we know that as He's doing this, God is working all things together for good. Not only the sufferings of the present time, which cause us to be in the position of weakness where we can't figure out what to say as we're praying, but also the intercession of the Spirit helping us in our weakness to convey to God what it is we can't figure out to say. Have you ever been there? Did you know that the Holy Spirit is there to help you? I'm going to let myself get ahead of myself. You and I often carry this undue, heavy burden to figure out exactly the will of God in every single circumstance before we pray. We don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. It's easy to figure out the will of God in some things because it's expressly given to us, and it's very hard to figure it out in other things. For instance, if, if, you're, if you're over the bedside of that woman with four children who looks like she's within, in days of dying of this cancer, how, do you pray that she goes to be with Jesus and that she's relieved from this suffering, or that she stays to be able to be a mother to her four kids and a wife to her husband? How do you pray? How do you pray? Do you pray that the Lord takes her to be with Him and that in her death, many people who are still 
separated from God, carrying unforgiven sin under the wrath of God, that they see her die and say, oh my goodness, this woman knew the Lord. I remember what she said to me as she was dying, and they now come to the Lord as a result of her dying and going to be with Jesus. How do you, do you pray against that and say, no, Lord, keep her here so that we can enjoy her? How do you pray? Do you pray that the Lord deliver you from persecution when, when, when people are, are bringing attack against you because you believe in Jesus and, and maybe you're off somewhere in the world serving the Lord amongst an unreached people group who have never heard the name of Jesus before and there are people hostile to your faith and they threaten you with death if you continue to preach in Jesus' name? <coughs> Do you pray that the Lord deliver you from that persecution? Or that he allow you to suffer martyrdom so that you would be one of the full number of martyrs in Roman or in Revelation chapter 6 verses 11 that we're still waiting for before the end comes. What, what do you pray? We don't know what to pray. That's what I'm, that's what I'm telling you. <coughs> More importantly, that's what the Bible is telling us. We don't know what to pray. My uncle, my uncle just about 10 years ago was diagnosed with Stage 4 lymphoma. And I didn't really know what that meant, but somebody said that's cancer in its terminal stage. And he was given less than six months to live, 10 years ago. I called him a few days ago. The Lord miraculously healed him of his cancer. But more importantly, during that process, the Lord left that cancer in his body long enough to heal him of his unforgiven sin. He became a Christian. Now he has the promise of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Not just that God would remove this cancer from his body, but this cancer of unforgiven sin from his soul. I didn't know how to pray at that point. I, was, I had been a Christian for two years. I didn't know what to pray. At one moment I was saying, Lord, if you've if you, if you got to kill him to save him, do it. Save him right before he dies, but if you've got to do this to save him, do it. And then at the other point I was saying, no, my, my cousin, his daughter is struggling. She, she doesn't understand this. She cried in the backyard with me and she said, Ray, why would God do this to me? How? And I said, Lord, don't, don't kill him. Don't let him die. She won't understand. And, and I, I didn't know what to pray. But the Spirit helped me in my weakness. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to His purpose. Remember, Paul does not just say all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. He says, and we know. Here's my question. How do we know that? How do we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose? Verse 29 and 30. Give us the answer. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. For, because, here's how we know that. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let me tell you what that means. That means that the only way as we endure the sufferings of this present time, the only way that we can know that all things work together for good 
Biblically, the only way that we can know that is if we first know that God has foreknown us and predestined us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, I know full well that the word predestined is often a bad word in church circles. I'm fully aware of that. The only reason I use it is because the Bible uses it. I am, I am under obligation from God to speak what he speaks. Did you know that? As a, as a preacher, I am, um, I am under obligation to say what God has said, not what you want to hear. Did you know that? Did you guys know that? Uh, you can talk back. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let's, let's look at this really quickly. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For, because, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's a fact. And because I first know verse 29, now I can know verse 28. Because I know that God has foreknown and predestined me to be like Jesus, I know that whatever I suffer in this present time is God's co-worker or fellow worker to take me to that end. Or Y'all can say amen. Are you with me? Amen. I've been predestined. Before the creation of the world, God knew me. And before the creation of the world, He predestined me to be like His Son, Jesus. And now, because I know that that's where I'm going, I know that everything I suffer in the present time is taking me to that end. And I know that all things work together for good. Can't know that unless I believe in predestination. I don't know how you've heard predestination explained before, but I bet you it wasn't in a Romans 8:29 way. I bet you you never linked verse 28 and 29 together the way the Bible does. Because predestination in God's book is the very ground upon which you and I have any ability to believe that all things are working together for our good. <laughs> you can't get away from it. Now, what exactly is this predestination? What is the end to which God has predestined us? That's important because when we said in verse 28 that all things are working together for our good, the good is the predestined end to which God is bringing us. Which is, now let's stay in the Bible again. This is good, isn't it? Which is what? Verse 29, For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So God has predestined us to be like Jesus. Why did He do this? In order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. So He's predestined us to be like Jesus and with Jesus. Forever. See? See how that works? You don't have to be scared of predestination. God has predestined you to be like Jesus and with Jesus forever. And that's what most of you say you want anyway, right? You ought to embrace predestination as it's taught in the Bible. You ought to embrace it. With all the questions you may have that attend the rest of what the Bible teaches about it, bring the questions, but don't reject this. God has predestined you, if you belong to Him, to be like Jesus and with Jesus forever. 
I have come to love rather than despise the doctrine of predestination because now it's a 28-29 thing for me. Are you all with me? It's a verse 28-29 thing for me. It's not something I heard from someone else. It's something I heard from the living God in Romans chapter 8. And nobody can keep me from loving this doctrine anymore. Nobody. Because I want to be like Jesus and with Jesus, and that's what God promises me. Let's keep going. Watch this. God didn't stop there, but in verse 30, and those whom He predestined, He also called. And those He called, notice this, there's nothing here that says, and those He called, He watched and waited to see what they would do. You don't don't find that. It says, and those He called, He also what? Which means they came. That's what that means. They came. And He justified them. He said, I'm going to take the righteousness of my son Jesus and in my plan to conform you to his image, I'm going to put that righteousness on you as I take your sin and put it on him on the cross. You're going to be like my son because that's what I've decided. Here's his righteousness. Give me your sin. I'm going to put that on the cross. Pour out my wrath. You're free because of him. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Are you all with me? This is what God is doing. That's what predestination is about. That's what God foreknowing us is about. That's what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 is about. All things working together for good. Everything, if you belong to God, is taking you to that end. And now, verse 31, and now, Paul, as he's writing this, I believe, says, are you kidding me? I believe Paul says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, and I've already told you what it means for Him to be for us now, He has foreknown us, He has predestined us to be like Jesus and with Jesus, and then in having predestined us, He called us, and having called us, He justified us. Having justified us, He glorified us. He is for us. If God is for us in that way, who can be against us? I mean, who can be against us? Watch this. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? So another way that we could describe those who love God and are called according to His purpose, who are the children of God in verse 16, called to endure the sufferings of this present time in verse 18, who have the first fruits of the Spirit in verse 23, and who have been predestined and foreknown by God in verse 29. We could also say that these people are the elect. I'm just using biblical words. Are you all with me so far? Oh, you're going to love these things after a while. You're not just going to tolerate them. You're going to love them. You're going to love them because you understand what they mean. So here we Who shall bring any charge, verse 33, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? And I'm going to read the rest the way St. Augustine read them in the 4th century as a set of questions or interrogatives. Who is He that condemns? Christ Jesus, the One who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, here's how I know that we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, I believe including me, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you've got to put an exclamation point right there. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Let me, I've already told you how, how a correct understanding, this is part two now, how should this understanding change our lives? A correct understanding of this passage. It should give us a new freedom in prayer. We don't have to figure out everything. The Spirit is there to help us in our weakness. And it should also give us a new ambition for ourselves when we suffer the sufferings of this present time. And here's what I mean by a new ambition. Verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Do you know how we read and hear that verse? Do you know how we live and apply that verse? Over all these things, we are conquerors through Him who loves us. That's how we hear that verse. And that's not what that verse says. It does not say that we are conquerors over these things through Him who loves us. It says we are more than conquerors in these things through Him who loved us. Oh, so important. So important. Because Paul could have pointed to the risen and exalted Christ at this point and say, draw your strength from the risen and exalted Christ who has demonstrated that He is a conqueror over temptation. Conqueror over sin. Conqueror over suffering. Conqueror over death. Conqueror over Satan. Conqueror over everything that seems to conquer you right now. He could have done that. He talked about how Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. The Spirit's helping us in our weakness. But He doesn't point to these things. He says, not only are you a conqueror, you are more than a conqueror. The new ambition is that I just don't want to be a conqueror over these things. I want to be more than a conqueror in them, whether God takes me out of them or not. I want to learn what it means to be more than a conqueror in my suffering because God has put that potential in me by the Holy Spirit to look at the sufferings of this present time the way Jesus did when He went to the cross and suffer to the glory of God. It is possible to do that. To be more than a conqueror. And sometimes when you're more than a conqueror, it looks like something else has conquered you. That's what lots of people thought about the cross. And so, the Apostle Paul points us back not even to the resurrection here, but to the cross. And he says, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Who's that Him? Well, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution? No. Verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us when He went to that cross and suffered more than any of us have ever been called to suffer. He suffered the wrath of God due to us because of our sins. When God picked your sin up off of you if you belong to Christ and put it on His Son and said, now I can be favorable to you. That's what propitiation means if you've ever come across that word. God was angry at you because of sin. He had to be angry at you and pour His wrath on you. But He 
He put your sin on Christ who absorbs the wrath of God for you and now God can be propitious. He can be favorably disposed to you because the thing which made him angry is gone. And so now we are more than conquerors in our present sufferings through him who loved us when he stretched his arms out on that cross and died. He overcame through his sufferings. He was more than a conqueror on the cross. And we can be more than a conqueror now today through something that might be every bit physically as brutal, a death, but nothing near it spiritually. We do not suffer the wrath of God if we belong to Jesus. Are you glad that Jesus stands between you and God? Are you glad the Spirit helps you in your weakness? You ought to be glad if you're in here and you're glad, and I'll, I'll say this as we close, if, 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 this, if you cannot say that Romans chapter 8, verse 28 belongs to you, that the promise in this verse belongs to you, I pray that it would change for you today. Would you please consider that perhaps God has foreknown you and predestined you to be like Jesus and with Jesus forever? And that now He is calling you you're not just responding to my call but the call of God through his Holy Spirit let's pray Lord thank you so much for what you've taught us today and I pray now that you would fill our hearts with joy that if there's anyone in here who is without the promise of Romans chapter 8 verse 28 you would now fill their hearts with your spirit you would take from them the sin to which they hold on that you would put it on your son Jesus even retroactively, that you would pour out your wrath for that sin upon Jesus, that you would fill them with the assurance that their sins have been removed from your sight and forgiven, that you would put your spirit in their hearts, that you would give them a new passion, new desires, and a, a desire to be like Jesus and with Jesus forever, and that you would, you would carry them to this end by your grace. And I, and I pray that for those of us who at some time in the past have experienced this miracle of grace, that we would appreciate it more and more and more and more. We ask this in all, in, in all humility, by the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. 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 I, you, Lord, amen. Thank you so much, Lord. Thank you so much for what you've done for us.